So, so uh, one thing that we uh, can see with Eusebius in the church history is that this book is a pioneering book, right? It's a book that's chronicling pioneers. Uh, and uh, the history recorded in Eusebius tells us about the earliest members of these pioneers. Uh, the, church, uh, the church following the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. These guys were pioneers. And Eusebius talks about these men and these women who uh, are in the book. They're pioneers, like Martin Luther was a pioneer in the Reformation, or John Winthrop, or, or Romulus even. Uh, so not only does this book record the doings of pioneers, it also explores new territory. Right? Do you guys remember reading in the introduction about uh, the explorers that explored like the Northwest United States? Yeah. And uh, the, the, the writer of the introduction was just so amazed that they could trek 600 miles with all these pack horses and boats. And, and he had even mentioned he had trouble going up his stairs. Uh, that's just amazing since he, he can't really move around all that much, not nearly as compared to them. And so they were pioneers. I can think of the pioneers that settled here in Acadiana. Uh, where did the pioneers who settled here in Acadiana come from? Do you, any of you know? John Nova Lance? Scotia. Nova Scotia, yeah. And, and originally, where were they from? I thought you had it in, you were about to say it. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's right. France, they're French. Yeah, that's why we have such a rich French heritage and French culture here. And um, these Acadians, Acadians, as they were called, they came from Nova Scotia, uh, seeking a new life and, and getting away from persecution. How many of you know where Nova Scotia is? Nebraska. Huh? Nebraska. Nebraska? No, it's not near Nebraska. Right. Further than that. It's all, if you go around, I wish I had a map in here. If you go all around Florida in, oh, well, there you go. Well, it's very small, though. I'll try my best to show you. This isn't going to look like a lot because this map is so small. So we're here, and the Acadians came all the way here. There's Nova Scotia. So they, they journeyed all the way from almost area where Maine is all the way down to South Louisiana. It's in Canada. It's like a province of Canada. Right? So they came from really far away too. And so they were definitely pioneers. Right? Uh, how many of you, um, you know, have, what was the, how, what's the farthest distance you've ever walked? You, y'all know? Like ever, or have y'all even like kept track of it before? Uh, like if you ever went hiking, what's the farthest distance you ever hiked? Casey? Uh, I didn't really hike, I was in Disney and I... And Disney's I, like hiking, that's yeah. far. Yeah. <laughs> and I walked about 20,000 maybe. 20,000 steps? Yes. Yeah, that's a lot, right. Mm-hmm. Johnny Lane? Like eight, nine, ten miles. Yeah, okay, okay. Joseph? Eight miles. So yeah, we'll probably get you know eight, ten miles, fifteen miles. Uh, this journey from Nova Scotia to Louisiana is over two thousand miles. Right? They didn't have cars. They didn't have like they couldn't like drive seventy on the highway to get where they need to go. They walked or they they uh, took a boat 
or uh, they had like uh, horses and, and buggies and horse-drawn carriages and those sorts of things. So uh, it took a lot of effort to get 2,000 miles, and we struggle with 10 miles, right? So what I'm trying to say is, is that uh, you know these pioneers should be we should be amazed at what these pioneers have done. And Eusebius records pioneers as well, but they're different kind of pioneers. They're not necessarily traversing distances or anything, uh, but they are moving into new territory as far as worldview and as far as uh, the kingdom of God is concerned. And they explore new territory in a lot of senses. So for this book, this is the first record we have of the history of the church since Luke wrote the book of Acts in the New Testament more than 200 years earlier. So Luke wrote a history of the church from Christ, you know, up until, uh, you know, about 60 AD, and then nothing. After 60 AD, 70 AD, nothing. No, no one is writing and chronicling what's going on in the church of God for almost 200 years because Eusebius comes along in the 200s. So uh, this is very, very important to us because these are our, our, this is our heritage. These uh, first men and women of the church are you know, our fathers and mothers in the faith, in the sense. So it's good to know where we've come from. How many of you like to, like to know where you've come from? Maybe you have family genealogies. and You like to know, like, you know who are my great-grandparents? Who are, who are my ancestors of long ago? Well, Eusebius is telling us who our ancestors are uh, from long ago in the Christian faith. And so as we uh, pick up this book and we read it, uh, envision the pioneers throughout history who have given and sacrificed that we might enjoy the fruits of their labors. Okay, so Eusebius wrote the book, right? Uh, He was born around 265 A.D., he died around 339 A.D. And now, while Eusebius is, uh, is not a very common name today, right? It was very common back then. Uh, indeed, so common that our Eusebius, the one we're reading, is sometimes called Eusebius of Caesarea in order to distinguish him uh, from other Eusebiuses. And so uh, Eusebius was born around 265, and he lived and was educated in the eastern portion of the Roman Empire. And after witnessing and experiencing the vicious results of the Diocletian persecution, including the death of a good friend of his, Pamphilius, he was appointed bishop of Caesarea in 313. And uh, and he served in that role for the remainder of his life. I'm going to go ahead and take questions after, all right? Uh, So I'm going to ask a question. What is a bishop? Oh, you're about to ask that. A bishop is what, Gideon? A, um, a higher part of the clergy that oversees the uh, priests and deacons. Right. That is certainly what it is now. Uh, and, and back then, it was a lot like that. But it also, uh, we can shorten that up to say he was an overseer. He was an overseer. He was a pastor, right? Bishops are pastors, right? Yeah, they also are pastors. Uh, bishops these days... Uh, maybe in the Episcopalian or Anglican churches, uh, oversee other pastors in different parishes, right? And he did a lot of that, I believe, but he was also a pastor uh, of his own congregation, okay? And so he remained in Caesarea as a bishop of this church uh, and of the churches in that area uh, for the remainder of his life. Uh, 
And so because of his vast learning, Eusebius was a very learned man. He was very educated. And because he could write so well, Eusebius was highly esteemed by the emperor Constantine, who was the first Christian emperor. And after the persecution of Christians uh, was terminated by the Edict of Milan in 313, Eusebius became one of Constantine's chief advisors. And, uh, you know, he's the most famous for his role in the Arian controversy, uh, serving as one of the leading bishops at the Council of Nicaea, uh, which Constantine convened in 325 in order to bring peace and unity to the church. Now, we're going to learn about all of these things this year, Council of Nicaea. What was that all about? What are some of the big heresies and things that were threatening to divide the church in those early days? We're going to learn all about that as we continue to read Eusebius. Okay, And so it was around the time of the Council of Nicaea that Eusebius finished the book you're reading. And, uh, and as Eusebius glanced back over the last 300 years separating him from the death and resurrection of Jesus, he couldn't help but marvel at the overriding hand of God in all of it. Uh, providence guided the church up to this point and into the conversion of Constantine. And Eusebius uh, mentions this prophecy by Isaiah, and he said, this prophecy has come to pass. It's Isaiah 49, 7. It says this, Kings will see and arise. Princes will also bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. So we can... Uh, we can see that that prophecy has been fulfilled. Kings will see and arise. Who was the king that saw and arise? Who was one of them? Who we just said? Well, no. Who, who, did, who um, ended the persecution of the Christians in the 300s? I just said his name like a minute ago. Constantine. That's right. That's the Roman emperor. Right. And so Eusebius is saying, ah, that's one of the kings that arose and saw uh, the, the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said that princes will also bow down. Constantine bowed down because of the Lord who is faithful. So Eusebius was overjoyed, very happy about that, right? And so, talking about his book, uh, without Eusebius, we, we wouldn't know much of anything about the first 300 years of church history. We wouldn't know anything that happened to the church without him. He is the primary resource that we get for the first 300 years of church history after Luke, right? And why do you think that is? Why do you think, uh, you know, he's the only one? Why weren't there more historians doing this sort of thing? Do what? Well, one, one problem with uh, you know, restructuring, reconstructing the history of pioneer days is that the pioneers were often so busy in building and planting and just surviving that they don't have the time or the leisure to sit and write about what they were doing. Right? When you're busy doing the great work of God, when you're busy planting churches, when you're busy uh, you know, marrying and having families and these sorts of things, 
um, and just surviving in the middle of a, of a empire-wide persecution of, of, of you know of Christians, you know you don't really have time or the leisure to sit there and write about the big picture. See, our fathers were so busy articulating the gospel; they were so busy preserving it from false teachers, and they were so busy maintaining a consistent witness. Uh, before their pagan rulers, that they didn't have the leisure to look at the big picture and get that 30,000-foot view uh, and consider what God was accomplishing through them. But by God's good providence, this situation changed when Constantine was converted. Right? And Christians were suddenly freed from the impending sense of doom that they were going to be eradicated and that they were going to be killed. And so Eusebius, as he perceived the significance of this moment, he wrote the first history of our people, the Christian people, becoming in the process uh, what, they, what everyone calls the father of church history. And so um, Eusebius wrote this work, but his work didn't just sit on the shelf after he wrote it. No, a lot of people read it. Uh, it was copied. It was recopied. It was read and reread. It was imitated and it was re-imitated throughout history. And, and while there are no church historians prior to Eusebius, there are many after him. Uh, we can think of Socrates, not the hemlock drinker Socrates, not the old Greek Socrates, another Socrates. We can think of Theodotus. We can also think of another great one uh, who came not long after Eusebius. His name was Saint... No, that's a good, good guess though. Saint Augustine, right? Yeah, he's, he's a big one. And so, so one thing characterizes all these church historians. They all start with Eusebius. Okay? And so, th- thinking about main character in this book, who is the main character in, in the, the church history? Raise your hand. It's like God. God, Definitely. Definitely God. Yep, God himself. He is the main character. He is the author of all of this, really. Uh, he is the real mover and shaker in this period. Right? And Eusebius clearly understands this. He clearly understands that God is the author of history. And he interprets the changing fortunes of the church through the lens of God's sovereignty and his control over the world. Uh, but God orchestrates the story, not just by himself, but he orchestrates the story through the lives of men and women, through the lives of people. And so Eusebius is very careful to include these people's names. Uh, he discusses heroes of the faith, like the apostles and the, the bishops that came after them, uh, the presbyters, the elders who strove to protect biblical doctrine from false teachers, and the confessors and the martyrs who endured torture and oftentimes death. Uh, for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of their master, the Lord Jesus Christ. So there are, for instance, great teachers and writers like Origen and Dionysus of Alexandria who defends the church from false teaching. There were also apologists like Justin Martyr and, and Quadratus who risked personal harm and to defend their brothers and sisters uh, in writing. Uh, there are also martyrs like Polycarp and and Blandina, who endured uh, unimaginable cruelties for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ, right? And so Eusebius' story uh, includes not only heroes, it also includes some villains too. 
there are emperors who set themselves up against God. They hated God. Uh, we have the Jews who continued to reject their Messiah. And we have false teachers who wanted to lead the church astray and away from orthodoxy. Uh, they include men like Nero. How many of you heard of Nero? Yeah, Nero, bad dude. Uh, Galerius. Uh, there's uh, uh, Maximum Dia. Uh, and there are weak men like Pilate. They were deceptive men like Simon Magus. We read about him and Pilate in the scriptures. Uh, we read about uh, Valentinus and Paul of, Sem- uh, of Samosata. All, each of these guys, these villains, they each play a role in the story that God's orchestrated for the ultimate good of his people. Okay? <clears throat> and so, the base, what's the basic purpose of the church history? Why did Eusebius write it? Why do you think he wrote it? Why did he do this? Aaron? That's yeah, that's part of it, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, definitely. That that's right, yeah. So so the basic purpose of Eusebius writing the church history is to record uh, the history of God's people from the life of Jesus through Eusebius' own day. Okay, and he actually says why he wrote it in uh, the first paragraph of the book. And he says this, it's, it's, it's his intent to record, number one, the names and deeds of the apostles and their successor bishops in the most famous churches, uh, number two, is his second purpose, uh, the major, he wanted to record the major historical events which occurred in this period. Uh, number three, the writings of those shepherds who strove to teach and defend Christian doctrine. And four, the names of the heretics who endeavored to corrupt apostolic teaching. Five, he wanted to write about the fate of the Jews who rejected their Messiah. And six, he wanted to write about the glorious achievement of the confessors and martyrs who suffered for the sake of of Christ. So yes, you guys are right. He wanted the successive Christian generations to remember what God has brought his people through. It's very similar to uh, Moses writing the first five books of the Bible. Why did he write the first five books of the Bible? Because he wanted the Israelites to know where they came from. He wanted the Israelites to know what hardships they endured, and he wanted them to know how great God was in getting them through all of those hardships, right? That's why Moses wrote what he wrote. That's why Eusebius wrote this early history of the church. He wanted the successive generations of Christians to thank God uh, for, uh, for what he's done in the early church, even all the persecutions. Because if it wouldn't have been for that early church, we would not be sitting in this room talking about this right now. You, wouldn't, you probably wouldn't be a Christian. Right. All, even though you've never read Eusebius, the work of Eusebius and, and his impact has spread through Christendom so much over the past 1700 years that we would not be the Christian generation that we are today uh, without him, without him ministering to our forefathers of the faith. Right. So let's go ahead and uh, keep going here. So um, Eusebius uh, writes this book and he organizes his material in a series of 10 books. Right? Those are the books that we see on the little schedule there, right? The first number. All right? So the books are arranged chronologically. 
beginning with the life, death, and resurrection of, of our Lord Jesus. And then it goes through the reigns of the Roman emperors, and it closes with the victories of Constantine over Maxentius and Maximandia and uh, Licinius. Okay? And so <clears throat> that's kind of an overview. And you can look at the book overviews in your Omnibus 2 introduction. They have a list of what each book talks about. I'm not really going to mention those right now. Um, so y'all can look at that later if you want. And so, uh, you know, pioneers in general, I'm not talking about the pioneers of the church, but pioneers in general are often praised, but they're often criticized too, right? Uh, later generations look back at the pioneers. I mean, you think of the Mayflower, for instance. You know, a lot of people praise uh, the folks that came across the Atlantic Ocean on the Mayflower, but a lot of people criticize them too. Uh, why did they have to do this that way? You know, they're reading about their, their, uh, their journeys and what went on. You know, why didn't they think of that problem? Uh, why didn't they tell us uh, what happened on that occasion? You may find yourself thinking that whenever you're reading Eusebius. Why don't you tell me more? Why don't you tell us more about this? Well, hindsight is always 2020. You all know what that means? Yeah. What is hindsight? When someone says that, what does that mean? Hindsight's always 2020. You ever heard that phrase? No. Never? Well, 2020 is like the clearest vision you can have with your eyes, right? Oh, yeah. Hi- and what is hindsight? It's looking behind you, right? And so as you, uh, you know, we are ahead of the pioneers, right? Uh, any of the pioneers. Pioneers of Mayflower, Eusebius, we're way ahead. We're all the way in 2023. He was in like, you know, 300. So we're way ahead. And so we saw what all happened between here and here. And we can look back and say, oh, well, I could have saw that problem coming a mile away. Why didn't you see it? Well, hindsight is always 2020. It's always easier to look back on what happened and figure out a solution. But when you're in the middle of it, it's very, very difficult uh, to, to be able to know what the right decisions are or know what to mention or, and things like that. Okay, so pioneers receive a lot of criticism for that reason. And Eusebius also has received a bunch of criticism. And so as the first man to compose a history of the church, uh, the early church, he has been the object of numerous criticisms. A lot of people says he relies too much on other sources. He, he borrows from too many people. Uh, you know, or he doesn't give us enough detail about the heretical movements he mentions. Or, you know, he's too triumphalistic. He's too optimistic. He sees the glass half full too much. Or, or um, he's not sufficiently critical of Constantine. Constantine wasn't an angel, believe me. He was converted, but he still was not like a great emperor. But Eusebius never talks bad about him. Why do you think that is? Because Constantine commissioned Eusebius to do the work that he's doing, the histories. So Constantine's kind of his boss in this matter, in writing this history. And so you think you're going to talk bad about the boss and the very history you're writing about? Probably not. So he was not very critical of Constantine, and he, get, and he gets flack for that, right? Um, one of the most persistent criticisms that leveled at Eusebius as a historian is that he relies too much on other sources. Uh, and, and as you read, you're going to quickly discover that he quotes from all sorts of people, liberally and freely from other writers. Um, his style of writing history is not uh, attuned to modern standards, which uh, don't value 
all of that borrowing. If we borrowed that much in a college paper, we'd be accused of plagiarism. But there were different standards of writing back then. But even though he used other sources, right, that doesn't detract from Eusebius' accomplishment or mar our knowledge of his own understanding of the events that he covers. So Eusebius's quotations and his excerpts are joined together in such a way that the material reads as one big story. And, and that's great writing on his part. He didn't simply cut and paste. Rather, he carefully organized uh, his material and he added uh, explanatory notes and chapters to try to unite it into a single tale so it would be enjoyable for the reader. And so um, what emerges here is a stirring saga of the earliest years of the church. And this, this saga, this grand story, begins with the God of heaven and earth as he has revealed himself in Christ. And so apart from uh, Christ, as Eusebius himself remarks, uh, there would be no Christians, right? Yeah, so therefore, if we are to compose a history of the Christians, it follows that we start with who? Christ, right? Doesn't the word Christian have Christ in it? Doesn't the word Christian mean a little Christ? Right? So doesn't it make sense if we, have a, if we start a history of the Christian people, shouldn't we start with the history of Christ first? I think so. Yeah. So we'll do that here in a little bit in this class. So who is Christ? Who is Jesus? Where did Jesus come from? Uh, is he merely an ordinary man or is he something more? Is he God or is he God and man? Is he a creature or is he a creator? Is he different from the Father or is he absolutely the same as the Father? And is his Father also the creator of the universe, the God of the Old Testament, or is he a completely new deity? Most Christians today answer these questions very quickly without a great deal of thought behind it. However, though, in the early history of the church, these basic questions had to be carefully considered in the light of the Word of God and the worship of God's people. They had to answer the question, who exactly is Christ? So every pioneer has to stake out uh, the limits of the territory that he's claiming. Right? He has to mark out his perimeter and then... Put the flag down, right? So whether it's uh, Romulus uh, plowing the, uh, the Palatine Hill or uh, that uh, explorer that was uh, in the northwest region of the United States, uh, one, of the, one of the pioneers' first tasks is to build fences or place boundary stones uh, which declare, hey, everybody else, this is mine. This is my property. Okay, I staked it out. This is mine. So the pioneer needs to know what land is rightfully his so that he can improve the land without being afraid of losing it when the next settler comes in. And so he can defend it from invaders and thieves. So like that, the early Christians had to articulate their understanding of God and Christ and stake out, as it were, what teachings were acceptable and what teachings were unacceptable in referring to Christ. So Jesus himself had warned that false prophets would appear and that they would attempt to lead his people astray. Have any of y'all read that in the scriptures? Jesus said, beware, 
There are false prophets that are going to be coming, and they're going to try to lead you astray. And sure enough, as Eusebius writes, this exact thing happened, right? Uh, Heretics like Simon Magus, uh, Menander, Marcion, uh, Valentinus, Mani, and Paul of uh, Samosata, they arose and they endeavored to lead the people of God away from the truth. Okay, the leaders in the church had to confront these men. They had to counter these men and then they had to do what the Bible says. They had to preserve the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So one of the first stakes that our fathers had to pound in the ground uh, as they were uh, staking this new territory was the relationship between Jesus and God particularly between Jesus and the God of the Old Testament. Okay? So heretics like Marcion, uh, uh, Valentinus, or, and other Gnostics, they denied that the Creator and the Father were one and the same God. They denied that. They thought the Creator was someone different than the Father. Right? So they maintain that the Father that Jesus revealed is different from the Creator who made the world and made the universe. They even held that while the Father is good and loving, the Creator is mean and harsh and unloving and judgmental. And he, therefore, He is unworthy of our worship. This, is this what the Lord Jesus taught? Is this what the apostles taught about the God of the Old Testament? No, these heretics were trying to get them, get the early church to toss out the Old Testament and just keep the New Testament because that God is mean. He's a different God than the, the God of love who is Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Right? That's what they were trying to get them to do. And so we'll, we'll read about this soon enough. According to Eusebius and the other early church fathers, the answer to whether this God is, these gods are different is... Absolutely not. They are no different. They are the same God, right? The God of the Old Testament who created heaven and earth is exactly the same Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as the Nicene Creed would later declare, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That's why they put that in there in the Nicene Creed, because of these heresies that were running around. And so Eusebius fully embraced this understanding of the Father, That the Father that Jesus talks about, the Father, the God that we serve, is the same God who created the heavens and the earth. And I'm sure many of you are thinking, well, duh, right? It seems very obvious. But it wasn't so obvious to a baby church who was only, you know, 100 years old. I know, I'm thinking in church terms. Churches grow a lot older than people do. To 100, us to be 100, we're really old. But for the church to be 100, that's like still a toddler in diapers. Right? So toddlers and diapers don't know very much, do they? They have to learn. And so they were in the process of learning. And Eusebius was documenting that whole thing. Right? The only reason we know and we don't question it is because we're a part of the church and the church has grown and matured in the faith and is older and is wiser. Right? And so uh, Eusebius uh, uh, document, documented this defense of uh, the, the Father and the Creator being one. And so, and, and Eusebius uses the Psalms as hymns of praise to God, and he quotes the prophets who anticipated the coming of the Lord, and he criticizes those who reject the Old Testament. He, uh, he, he uh, quotes um, a psalm. He says, Let us then sing the new song to the doer of wonders. 
the Lord of the universe, creator of the world, the almighty, the all-merciful, the one and only God. That's why he says those particular things. He puts creator of the world and all-merciful in the same phrase describing one being, right? Because he's trying to make a point. The creator of the world is not a separate thing from our all-merciful God. He is the one and only God. Okay, so the first thing we learn then about our Lord Jesus Christ is that he is the son of the living God, the creator of heaven and earth. See, Jesus didn't come to introduce some new deity. A lot of people thought that a lot of people said, oh, well, this Jesus that he that this guy that uh, God that Jesus talks about sounds a lot different than the Old Testament God. So they must be different people they mu- or must be different beings. It's not true. It's not true at all. Jesus didn't come to introduce some new deity. But he, the same Lord who sent a flood upon the earth, called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he led the Israelites out of Egypt. So contrary to Marcion and his, his pals, uh, it is this God who is the father of our Lord Jesus. Okay, um, And as Eusebius relates uh, the early history of the church, he not only confesses that God is the creator of everything, He also recognizes that God providentially directs every event in this story that he's writing. So Eusebius repeatedly gives praise to God. He he, uh, acknowledges his goodness and he credits God with all the miraculous wonders and praising of his power. And Eusebius is constantly aware of God's sovereignty. What does it mean? Uh, You probably hear that a lot. God is sovereign. What does that mean? Joseph, what's that mean? Like he rules over everything. That's right. He rules over everything. He controls everything. Did, did I steal your answer? Sorry. He controls. Aaron had his hand up. He controls everything. He directs everything and everyone all the time. He is not the cosmic watchmaker that I mentioned yesterday, who just built the universe. He wound it up. And then he took his hands off of it and left it alone. Now the universe just runs by itself on principles and rules and, and things. No, God is actively, uh, actively working and uh, running the universe. You know, I, the reason you're sitting on, in that chair, I know you would say, is gravity. And that is true, right? The reason you're not floating all around the room. But it is God providentially pushing you down and keeping you in that chair right now. You ever thought of it that way? No, but it's true. God is, uh, God is in control of everything, and He is orchestrating every single thing that is happening in your life. Um, <clears throat> he is keeping your heart beating. He is keeping air moving in and out of your lungs. He's doing that. Um, and if He wanted to, He could stop doing that, and you would just fall down dead where you stand, right? I'm not trying to scare you, but I'm just trying to give you the reality that God is in control of everything. And he loves you. If you're a Christian, he loves you. And he has sent his son to die for you. And he wants what's best for you in his kingdom. So that's what Eusebius is constantly aware of in, uh, in his history, that God is sovereign. Okay? Um, and I know we all would admit that and be fine with that. But really, how far uh, are we willing to take that claim? Think about that. As we look at the church around us uh, in America, do you guys think the church is in in very good shape in America right now? No, no. I see a lot of division into factions. Uh, 
Think about this. God is sovereign. Is this a part of God's plan that the church of God in America is so divided and has so many different factions in it? What's that? Is, is that a part of God's plan? Yeah, it must be. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. When we see unbelievers mocking Christ and placing, uh, you know, uh, for example, uh, uh, crucifixes in a bottle of urine, that's like an art thing. Like somebody like literally, like an artist, put a jar of urine and then put a cross in it to mock Jesus. Stop making noise. Fidgeting. Yeah, yeah. So you think that's part of God's plan? That's totally mocking Christ. Is that a part of God's plan? Yes, that's right. Um, uh, when nations suffer civil strife and upheaval and ri- there's rioting in the streets, do we view this as evidence of God's government over the nations? Yes. Eusebius would have said yes to all these questions. So God's sovereignty means that nothing happens apart from His determination. Psalm 115 verse 3 says this, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. And so Eusebius' confession of God's sovereignty is robustly biblical. It is biblical through and through. First, Eusebius acknowledges time and time again that God is the one who's permitting all of these horrendous persecutions being perpetrated against the church. God brought it about, and God brings it to an end in His time and for His good purposes. Uh, He says this, The rulers of this life would never find it easy to attack the churches of Christ unless the hand that champions us allowed this as a divine judgment to punish and reform us at chosen times. So Eusebius is saying that it is God, not man, who orchestrates the trials through which the church passes through. Amen? Amen. Second, Eusebius emphasizes the close connection between piety towards God, that means devotion towards God, and blessings and cursings in this life, both for the church and for the world. Because God is the one who governs history, we can expect that if we rebel against God, uh, what's going to happen if we rebel against Him? He will chastise us. He will discipline us, right? As His beloved children. Uh, in, uh, in self-conscious imitation of the book of Deuteronomy, Eusebius traces the rise of the Diocletian persecution to the unbelief and wickedness of God's people during the time of peace that came before it. Right? So Eusebius is making a connection here. He's saying to these particular Christians, the reason why you're being persecuted is because when the time was peaceful shortly before, you rebelled against God. You didn't obey God. You didn't heed His voice. You didn't read His Word. Uh, You didn't do these things. You became lazy. Uh, You became uh, wicked and rebellious. And the reason that you are being persecuted right now is for your discipline. You're basically getting a God spanking right now. God is spanking you for your disobedience. Right? So that's, that's what Eusebius is saying. And God is faithful, and He will always, with His uh, accustomed mercy, according to Eusebius, He will discipline His people when they turn away from Him. How many of you thank God for discipline? <laughs> I didn't expect so many hands to go up. I thought some were like, I don't want to be disciplined. You know, I don't, I don't necessarily like having consequences when I disobey. Or I don't like getting spankings when I disobey. 
Well, sure. But at the same time, God uses that discipline that your parents give you, ultimately that God gives you, to do what? Good. To good. Well, like what kind of good? Obey. And why is that good for you? To obey. So you get more and more consequences, but yeah, that's true. But uh, what else? When you obey your parents in the Lord, who are you obeying? Yeah, and when you obey God, you become more Christ-like, right? That's the point to be, to make you more like Jesus Christ, right? So that's why we should thank God for the discipline that we get because we are all sinners, right? We're all depraved in our hearts. That means we were sinner, we've all been sinners right from the beginning and deserving hell, punishment, and the grave. But God saved us. He brought us out of that. And now we still have, uh, we are a new man in Christ. We still have remnants of that old man that linger in our hearts and need to be eradicated and mortified and killed. And so discipline helps that to happen. You know, how many of you, since you're a Christian, have never sinned? I became a Christian, never sinned again. None of us can say that, right? Yeah, because we still have the remnants of that old man with its selfish desires and desires that are uh, you know, uh, antithetical to God's will in our hearts, right? And so we need that disciplined out of us. And God uses our parents. God uses the, the governing authorities to do that. He uses the church to do that. Uh, but ultimately, it's God disciplining us. And that discipline is good because we become... Uh, better and better, more sanctified and set apart Christians because of it, more obedient too. All right. And so, um, as an example of individuals who face God's judgment, uh, let's think a moment about the emperors who persecuted the Christians. You know, they share a very remarkable thing in common. Uh, nearly all of these um, these emperors who persecuted the church. They all died miserable deaths. Do you think that was randomly or done on accident? No, 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 no. No, I mean, think about uh, Herod. We read about Herod in the book of Acts. What happened to Herod? Gideon? He was eaten by worms. What a gruesome death. Sounds awful, like eating your insides out. It's gross, huh? Uh, Pontius Pilate. We don't hear anything about Pontius Pilate in, in the Bible, but we know from Eusebius that Pontius Pilate ended up committing suicide. He ended up killing himself. Um, Herod Agrippa, he was racked by stomach pains. Uh, Galerius was transformed into uh, a great blob of fat. And some crazy stuff, right? Miserable things. Uh, uh, Maxentius, he sank to the bottom of the Tiber, uh, the river. And uh, Maximum Daya, he withered away. And so why did all these things happen to these emperors? Why did they die such miserable deaths? Well, Eusebius says it later on. He said, I'll quote him in book eight. He says, because uh, God attacked the perpetrators of these crimes. That means persecution of the Christians. He was angry with them as the prime instigators of the whole evil persecution. And so not, not only does God discipline the church through persecution, but he also condemns the people who God, to whom he sent to do the discipline. Does that make sense? Not only does he persecute the church, who did he use to persecute the church? These evil emperors. So not only does God use these evil emperors to give his people a spanking, after that, what does he do to the emperors? He, he doesn't 
He doesn't discipline them because they're not his children. You don't, you don't discipline kids who aren't your children, right? But what does he do to them? He condemns them. He judges them. And not as a father, but as a righteous judge. And he, he sends a miserable death upon them uh, to communicate to the rest of the world, this is what happens when you mess with God Almighty and His people. This is what happens when you mess with His bride. You're going to die a miserable death, right? You're going to turn into a big blob of fat. <laughs> so, yeah, so God does that. God works in, by His divine providence in the world uh, according to covenant, according to blessings and cursings.